Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to just be alive, courtesy of your grace and mercy, and the chance to gather together like this and worship you through the filling of your spirit and your precious word that educates us and delivers us from all the lies in this world. Father, we're very grateful for your graciousness and your gentleness towards us each and every day, even as we fail throughout our day. You are faithful. And Father, most of all, we're grateful and thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, and that he made the unthinkable sacrifice so that once for all, we could have our debt of sin paid for through his blood. Help us never take this for granted, Father. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. And we ask that you bless this message and help us understand your things, your perspective, through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 48. All right, I'm going to start with something tonight that might be a little bit overstated, but I'm going to say it anyway. Everybody ready? Drum roll, please. Thank you, Jim. We pervert everything. I was just thinking about our recent messages, and lately we're talking about food, of all things. How the heck do we manage to pervert food? But we do. We pervert everything. And if you start there, if you, if you realize how bad we really are in the flesh, um, then there's no like, standards you're setting for yourself that are unrealistic or foolish. And uh, you're also then open to change. You're open to being corrected. You're humble enough to be corrected by God in whatever the area of life might be. But I really do believe that we pervert everything. I don't think anything's sacred to our, to our flesh, to the human race. And even as believers who still carry around this flesh for the time being, we pervert most every, everything. We don't realize we're perverting most everything in our lives in some way. But we are. As the Spirit sanctifies us believers, that happens less and less for us. Thank God. But even that is such a process. So the more the Spirit shines light on what we think is okay, the more I see how we pervert even the good things of God, whatever it might be. If we really could see it all perfectly right now, if God were to come down and show us a perfect, clear vision of everything we do, everything we uh, pervert, the correct or the pure way to do everything, we would just be shocked. We would be blown over. We wouldn't be able to function probably. But he's gracious and gentle, showing us one thing at a time. And our recent emphasis, uh, the last few lessons, has been on how we treat our physical body. And that our body is a gift of God, meant for God's glory and not for our own. And that's a radical change for many of us who 
even as believers, might not have considered what the Bible says about the body. And it's easy, I think, to overlook the body as unimportant because we're so focused on spiritual things. And obviously the spiritual things are top priority. But when you learn what we've been learning, that the body is used by God for spiritual things, it's, uh, it's a vital piece to be missing or to cast aside. And once we're born again, we're indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, the Bible says. And our body is His own possession. So think about that. It's, um, it's like not up for debate. There's no uh, muddy waters in this. On the board, 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 has been one of our main passages. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So apparently the body has been um, taken over by God, so to speak, uh, as his own possession. And apparently God intends to use it for spiritual things. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Therefore glorify God in your body. And under the category of the greatest things being the simplest, on the board, we've seen the great litmus test. On Tuesday, we saw this. Is what you're doing or thinking about doing bringing glory to God? Could there be a simpler test than that? Could there be a simpler question to ask than that? And yet, that's probably why it's the greatest litmus test for our actions, for what we do in the body even. Are you glorifying God in your body? Very simple, but very pristine, very pure, very to the point, very effective, if we are willing to ask ourselves, ourselves this question every day. Many believers are deceived even in this area, as simple as it is. And why is that? Just think about that. Why is that? How can you be deceived about something that simple? I mean, even the newest believer, even a child would say, yeah. Is what you're doing bringing glory to God or not? Even a child can say that. How is it that many adults miss this? Many Christians miss this. The reason is because the flesh likes to complicate things. Let me complicate it. Let me get it. Let me make up complication, uh, almost intellectualizing something. Let me add a bunch of boundaries and, and lines and stuff like that on when it's right and when it's wrong, and go this direction if you go that way, go this direction if it's a yes or a no. Why do we do that? Because the flesh wants to get involved, have some control, and also deny what the Bible is saying to us. So muddy it all up, says the flesh. But it's so simple. And we saw on Tuesday one of our problems is that we're able to invent and the only reason that's a problem is because we pervert the things of God, including the gift of imagination. We pervert beautiful things like that. So we start inventing ways that we can get around God's commands. All because the flesh is selfish. So we often imagine we're doing the right thing. This came up uh, a couple months ago, I want to say. Maybe even in one of the blogs. We often imagine we're doing the right thing. 
and we rationalize something as okay when it's really not okay in God's eyes. If we keep it simple and look at it with the simple question on the board. This came out also on Tuesday. They say that necessity is the mother of all invention. Well, in order to justify ungodliness, it is necessary in the eyes of the flesh. The flesh, the flesh gets desperate. The flesh says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't go, I can't go there. I can't obey that simple command because then it would impede on my freedom in my body to do what I want. So we can't go there. So the flesh sees this as necessary. I've got to justify this out or I'm in trouble. Let me justify it so much that I believe it, that it's okay with God. Humans are famous for inventing doctrines that don't actually exist so they can justify their ungodliness. We all do it. We're all guilty. But let's not lie to ourselves too and deceive ourselves and lead ourselves down more paths of misery. So a perfect example is with physical fitness and taking care of our bodies and how this fits in with spiritual fitness with God's purpose for our lives. You know, um, as I was reviewing my notes tonight even, before class, certain things with this clicked for me. And it's hard to explain sometimes, but for example, like I, I study several hours to prepare for this lesson for you all. I review it in the back tonight. And after all those hours of preparation, this thing clicked for me. So what does that tell you? What does that tell us all? Like how weak we are in the flesh, how, how maybe stubborn we are, we're not always listening, how maybe we need to review the notes or listen to a lesson again. Because physical fitness, as Pastor mentioned on Tuesday, falls under the umbrella of spiritual fitness. It's not like it's not a part of it. It is. Spiritual, spiritual fitness is number one. Our relationship with God is number one. But part of our relationship with God is this thing called physical fitness. And God says, use your body for my glory. It's there. It's part of it. Our flesh doesn't want to hear that. Our flesh wants almost like a free pass on what we do with our body because it's not spiritual. But that's just a fabrication of the flesh, really. So turn again to 1 Timothy 4, 7. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. This has been another one of our main passages the last couple lessons. So think about physical fitness and taking care of our bodies and how this fits in with spiritual fitness, with God's purpose for our lives. 1 Timothy 4.7 But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, that's comparatively speaking to spiritual discipline, right? But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So compared to uh, spiritual fitness, bodily discipline pales in comparison, of course. How can we compare anything temporal to eternal? How can anything temporal have the weight and the value of something that's going to last forever? However, there is a goodness in this present world to taking care of and using our bodies for Christ. 
That's what Scripture plainly says. There's a goodness there. There's a clear benefit to bodily discipline where we can use our bodies for eternal good. Think about that. Like, you know, you want, you want to think the body's temporary, and it is. This physical body's temporary. But think about the fact that you can do things in your body. Without your body, things you wouldn't be able to go do. Go out, for example, and spread the gospel. You can do things in your body that have eternal value. Like go in and help save a soul. Go in and help rescue somebody out of a horrible situation. Widows and orphans, for example. You can do wonderful things that have eternal value because of your body without which you'd be limited. So God says, I'm going to give you the privilege and the opportunity to, to use your body for eternal things, things that will never, ever lose their value. You, you didn't waste any of your time if you used your body for my purposes. So it's a matter of priorities. This came out recently, too. It's a matter of priorities. We must put the spiritual ahead of the physical but realize the physical is and can be part of the spiritual. It, we might say it's what you think about fitness that's important, like everything else. It's what you think about music that's important. It's what you think about food that's important. That's what God is looking at, why we do what we do, as we know. So it's a matter of priorities and also obeying what the Bible plainly states. So turn again to Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1. Later on, we'll get to more about God looking at why we do what we do. Romans 12, 1 has, has, was one of the main verses that triggered this whole discussion on food and the body. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I mean, again, even a child can understand what's being said here. Present your bodies, your physical bodies, as a sacrifice to God for His purposes, and that's spiritual because it's what you think of your body that counts with God. It's if you decide in your mind to dedicate your body to God or not, for example. But if you do that thing, if you're willing to do that, it's spiritual service of worship. God counts it. Presenting our physical bodies to God is directly related to being spiritual in this verse. Now on the board, let's look at a couple other translations of this verse that might help us, um, you know, get a better grasp on it our own lives. Romans 12.1 in the Amplified. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you to, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. If that didn't help you much, on the board, here's the message translation. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you, 
Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. I love that. God looks at why we do what we do. Like he accepts anything we dedicate to him. Any part of our lives that we dedicate to him. That's kind of what he's waiting for. You can place the most commonplace things that many people think have no meaning. You can place that before God as an offering. And the Bible, as we know, tells us this. If you've been here any amount of time, your work, do it as unto the Lord. You'll be blessed. God's glorified. It's all what you think of whatever the topic. And then it says embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. In other words, by, by placing that before God as an offering, all these quote-unquote little things, that is um, thanking him. That's gratitude. He gave us all those things and any health that we have, he gave us all that. So objectively speaking, our body is an instrument given to us to perform righteous deeds for the name of our Lord and Savior. If you were totally objective and step back and weren't subjective at all, take your opinions out of it, take your emotions out of it. What are the facts? Our body was given to us as an instrument to bring glory to God, to perform righteous deeds by faith that bring glory to God. Perspective is everything. How you look at your body and its usefulness can make all the difference. So stop rationalizing and be objective and be honest. As we saw on Tuesday, there's a lot in Holy Scripture about the body's importance in living life for God. After all, think about it. It is carrying around your mind, your soul, your spirit to places and people that God designed you to interact with. So turn in your Bibles again to Philippians 1, verse 20. Philippians 1.20. And this body that's carrying around our soul and our spirit is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right there you can see it has eternal value to it. Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What a goal, what a desire, or what a focus to have as a believer in Jesus Christ. Again, Paul says, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I don't care which one it is. I don't care anything in between. I want Christ to be exalted in my body. On the board. Christ exalted in our bodies. What a thought. When we subject or submit this body to God's purposes and not our own, we can be a light on a hill to a lost and dying world, a physical example of Christ's love, even in persecution. Think about that. A physical example of Christ's love, even in persecution. If your body wasn't 
a slave of yours, if you weren't using your body for God's purposes, where's the physical example someone can see? Let's say you're hiding in a closet all the time. Where's the physical example? Someone can't see your reaction to life, your reaction to suffering. Um, they can't see the love of Christ in you. Your body makes all that possible. So it's quite a tool, if you will. For example, it's when we are persecuted. Just think about this. We're persecuted or we're suffering in this body, as many of our own congregation members are suffering in their physical bodies right now and have been for a while. It's when you're in those situations that people see the light of Christ when we function in grace and forgiveness. Just think, get the picture in your mind. It's in those situations of persecution or suffering that when we act in grace and truth and forgiveness, people see the light of Christ. Were it not for those situations of suffering and persecution, there would be no light to be seen. If life is a piece of you know, cake, if everything's all roses, and you're in a lounge chair out there in our parking lot sipping a Mai Tai, and you say, I forgive you, you have no one to forgive. <laughs> no one's persecuting you. You're not suffering. There's no light in that, right? There's no example of Christ's love. Christ's love is most uh, bright when it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't rationally be there because of persecution, for example. So just think about it. On the board again, Christ exalted in our bodies when we subject or submit this body to God's purposes and not our own. We can be a light on a hill to a lost and dying world, a physical example of Christ's love, even in persecution. Philippians 1.20, we've already seen. And 2 Corinthians 4.10, turn there again. 2 Corinthians 4.10, we saw this on Tuesday. Another good explanation. So again, it's when we're persecuted and even suffering in this body that people see the light of Christ when we function in grace and forgiveness. Even though our body and our life might be suffering unjustly at the hand of, other, hand of others. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. There's our opportunity. It rests within the body, this thing that we carry around that also carries around our soul. It can be used for good, as evil as it can be, if we're functioning in the spirit instead of in the flesh. Think about this. What made the Lord's statement on the cross so powerful? When he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What made that statement so powerful? It's because his body at the time was abused and tortured. And his body was suffering, hanging on a cross, which was the ultimate both in suffering and shame. That's what made that statement so astonishing because of the condition of his body. And he therefore used his body to bring an example 
to people of unconditional love and forgiveness. To speak such gracious words when his body was so harshly treated by others, that light that came forth was so bright that people became saved on the spot at the cross. At least the thief and the centurion that we know of. And so we're told to carry our own crosses. Our crosses, whatever they might be, however they might vary, we carry them with our bodies and in our bodies. Whatever calling, let's say, is upon our life. And if we carry them with the same poise and grace and forgiveness that Christ did, then he'll use our actions in the body to bring attention to him. You know, I've heard many stories of people in our own congregation, our own family here who are suffering greatly, like physically speaking, let's say in the hospital or whatever, and letting Christ's light shine, having peace and accepting the situation, and people don't know what to do with it. The light is so bright, they don't know what to do with it. How do you have peace in this situation? How are you accepting this? How are you thanking God right now instead of cursing God? Why are you thanking God right now for what you do have? And that light is so bright, it saves people. If not on the spot, it's at work. And what what just happened there? God was at work in those people's bodies to be a witness for him. To, in essence, show the light and the love of Christ in a horrible situation, let's say. What an awesome opportunity it is. But see, that takes submitting. I mean, back to uh, the point on the board, when we subject or submit our body for God's purposes, then these things can happen. These Even miracles can happen. We can be used for a miracle because we're submitting, including our physical body to his purposes. So, not to be deceived by sin, we must decisively decide to master our sinful bodies and not be mastered by them. When we operate in self-control and discipline, we can rightly use our body for what God gave it. As Paul would say, make it my slave. See, Paul was very smart, as, as you know. He was a very smart man, but he was, even though he was intellectually smart, he was smarter spiritually because he was humble and he was humbled and he was just sold out for Christ. So look what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul's like, I'm not going to let this body make a slave of me. I'm going to make my body a slave, a slave of Christ. In other words, I'm not going to blow this opportunity. As pastors said quite a bit recently, we only come this way once. I don't care how old you are, it doesn't matter. If you're young, it doesn't mean you have a certain amount of years left. It really doesn't. We only come this way once. We have one opportunity to bring glory to God before we meet Him. So Paul knew this, and that's why he was all just sold all out. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. 
Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Look at the integral part the body has in this thing, the spiritual race. If you don't discipline your body, you're almost going to be useless. You're going to be dragged aside. It's going to be in the way of bringing glory to God instead of a wonderful tool. So we each have to ask ourselves, like in verse 27 there, is that your attitude about your body? Is that the attitude you take on for yourself about your body, about your life? Are you going to let this life slip away without bringing glory to God? So as has been coming up lately also on the board, protect your mind. Protect your mind. And notice again here the intimate mind-body connection to even spiritual things. Say something like, I'm not going to let Satan win by being undisciplined with my body. That's just one more tactic of his to get me to be lazy and careless with my body. Protect your mind. Use the mind that God gave you to be objective, to call out the facts as they are instead of try to complicate things with your flesh. Turn again to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Do you see how he made that decision with his mind? He made that, like, put his foot down, so to speak, in his mind. I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So obviously the body and how we treat it is important to the Lord. Again, on the board, protect your mind. Say, I'm not going to let Satan win by being undisciplined with my body. That's just one more tactic of his, to get me to be lazy and careless with my body. Don't fall for it. On the board, 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul also wrote, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. You see here Paul's willingness. I die daily. I lay down my body. Whatever situation it is required of it for Christ. We are daily called to die to self. And self includes selfish desires of the body. And think about it. Where does the uh, deceitful sin nature come from that we've been talking about in this series? Where does the deceitful sin nature reside? It resides in your body. Our temptations, the Bible says, often come from members of our bodies trying to get us to slip up. But with the mind 
and the soul and the spirit the Lord has given us, we have the power to control our members for God's glory. We do have the power. comes back to willingness again. Are we willing to submit our body to God and for God? Maybe you're not yet. But God's given us the power and the faculties to protect our mind, even. And we have the chance to do great things for God in our lives. Great things for God. I mean, when you get to heaven, if you've helped save one soul, if you brought one soul to Christ, to repentance, and they're in heaven with you, I'm not going on a limb and say it's a great thing. That's an eternally great thing. But without you functioning in your body or using your body to go somewhere, to help a person, to whatever the Spirit leads you to do, you don't get to participate in those great eternal things. So on the board, the human body has a purpose for a believer. It should never be abused or cast off as something that cannot be mastered or utilized for good. That is foolish. That would be a tragedy, really, if we as believers look at our body that way. It should never be abused or cast off as something that cannot be mastered and utilized for good. We often need our eyes opened to the most basic things, don't we? If we hold this humble attitude, God can use us and exalt us as a vessel of honor. And remember, it's called a vessel. What does a vessel do? It it carries something inside. That's related to our body. Our body can be used for honor. And if, and listen carefully here, if we're doing things for the right reasons, including the fitness of our physical bodies, then he will lift us up and promote us. If we're doing it for the right reason. We saw the only reason our diets and exercise plans fail us is because we're doing it for selfish gain, which is a bad motivation. That's why those things, you know, don't work. Because we're not doing it from a motivation that, that lasts. Um, if we were doing it for eternal things and we really believed we were doing it for eternal things, it would work. Because your motivation is through the roof because it's eternal, because it's pure and it's good. If we're doing things, including maintaining our physical body, because we love the Lord and we hope and desire to do great things for Him one day, if that's our heart and motivation, we're going to have success in our bodily disciplines. It won't even be a struggle, I don't think, because our motivation is pure and good. It's love. When, you, when, it's, when it's from love for Christ, is there any greater, more powerful motivation? Now, you might not, again, be there yet, in, the, in this area and that's okay pray about it ask God to help you and like change your heart in that area but if that is our motivation if it's good the result's going to be good you know it's going to last James 4.3 on the board this is such an important principle you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There are so many things we ask for with wrong motives, subtle wrong motives, where we have perverted 
God's intentions for us. As the Spirit has given us, what are your motives? Motivation is everything. 1 Samuel 16, 7, James 4, 3, we just saw, and Hebrews 4, 12, C, just to name a few. Motivation is everything in God's eyes. Two people can be doing the exact same good deed. One's got good motivation, one's got selfish motivation. God embraces one and shuns the other. One has eternal value, one has zero eternal value. The same exact deed. What are your motives? That's what we should be asking ourselves every day with everything we do. Not in a condemning way, but in an honest way. Be like, God, I don't want to be wasting my time here. Am I doing this for the wrong reasons? Show, show me my own motives where I'm off here. Because I don't even know. And it's that kind of humility. If we get to that point and we, we're willing to say that to him, he's going to reveal these false motives. And then guess what? You won't be wasting your life away. You won't be doing a deed that you say is for God, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You won't be wasting your time. And you won't be uh, lacking giving glory to God. So, for example, regarding mo motivation being everything, in 1 Samuel, we're not going to turn there, but many of you know this verse, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God saw David's heart, meaning he saw David's motivation was love for the Lord and to bring the Lord glory, not himself. God saw David's heart. So he said, ah, I can see his motivation. He loves me. He wants to do this for me. So God used him, and God blessed him. Motivation is everything. Compared to the other Israelites of the day that were there for the wrong reasons or were living in fear and not trusting God. And then in James 4.3, the main reason we don't receive answers to our prayers, we just read, okay, your father loves you, loves you so much he put his son to death for you, wants to bless you. And the only reason he can't as a good father is because of poor motives. You're asking for things, again, back in James 4.3 on the board, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So you can spend it on yourself. Any good father is not going to give a blessing to that kind of a child that is a brat, that is selfish. So even though God wants to bless our socks off, he can't because our motives suck. Sorry. But they do. They suck. And we don't realize that we're not willing to examine it. I don't want to really think about that. Go there. But selfish, corrupt motives, how's God going to bless you when your heart isn't right? When your motivation is not for him, it's for selfish gain. And Hebrews spells it out nicely for us on the board. Hebrews 4.12, part C. The word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Motivation is everything. It's what God judges by. This is it. And God knows every single one of these thoughts and intentions we have. There's another good question to ask yourself. What are your intentions when you do something even that's good? Are your intentions to bring glory to self? Are your intentions some form of personal gain? Because if you do this for someone, they'll scratch your back too. 
That's called worldly transactions. That's not a, a godly transaction where you give freely, no strings attached, right? What are your intentions? Great question to ask. So again, as we try to discipline our bodies, if we're doing that for ourselves, we're missing the mark and we will end up failing. If you're disciplining, disciplining your body, whatever it is, dieting, eating well, physical exercise, and you're doing that for yourself, selfish gain, that's an impure motivation. God's like, what are you doing? Don't get your eyes off of yourself. That's not why I gave you a body to look good and attract people who shouldn't be looking at you. That's not why I gave you a body. I gave you a body to do wonderful things with for my glory. If our motivation is for God and His purposes, when we're exercising or eating or whatever that is, right? If we're doing it for God as an offering to Him, lay it down as an offering before Him, He's going to bless it. Doesn't take, you know, not rocket science. He's going to bless it because your motivation is for Him. Our diets, our exercise will work out for us if and when we do it all for the Lord. Now, that's a, that's a big statement because we play the game where we, we pretend we're doing it all for the Lord and in the back of our mind we're doing it for self or to look good or for attention or whatever we're doing it for. You can't pretend with God, right? So if and when you submit in this way, if you're doing it for the Lord, God will bless you. And that goes for any area of life, really. And we know if our motivation is right before God and something doesn't work out, that's how we know it wasn't meant to be. Sometimes you might be like, well, why didn't this work in my life? I had the right motivation. I checked myself. I was doing it for God. It must not have meant, be meant, to be, meant to be for you, right? You have to conclude that. Not part of God's plan for your life. But how will we know that if we had a bad motivation in the first place? We won't know that it wasn't meant to be. When our heart is right before God, namely our motivation being pure, we have absolutely nothing to worry about in life. Just think about that. I mean, we, we mess up our own lives. We cause all this misery to ourselves because... We're not willing to um, go to God and say, I, want, I really want to do these things for you. I want to present my very life, my very body as an offering to you. Because we're not willing to do that, our life is a mess. But if we're willing to do that, we have zero to worry about in our lives. We don't have to worry about being attacked. We don't have to worry about uh, pressures. We don't have to worry about anything. Anything that happens to us is going to be from God as part of his plan for us as an unfair trial of testing, then it's fine, then it's glorious. But if our motivation is pure, we have nothing to worry about in life. God's going to take care of us. So what we've been talking about with physical fitness, also what came out on Tuesday, is that this has nothing to do with attractiveness. The most attractive thing about any person is that their mind and heart 
is set on the Lord. And we saw that Jesus was apparently not dashingly handsome like some movie stars these days, as they even try to do in, you know, biblical movies. They make him some glamour shot guy, right? They make him look like Fabio. Not that bad, but he's always this really, really, really handsome looking guy, right? Is that what the Bible says Jesus looked like? As we saw on Tuesday, no. And maybe, maybe God had Jesus be this way, physically speaking, so that people wouldn't follow him for the wrong reasons, so that they would seek out true beauty instead of following him for the wrong reasons like they did King Saul with his height and his stature and all that. On the board, Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That's Jesus. Who knows exactly why, but maybe, just maybe, it was so that people would be attracted to his character and his love and his mercy, not because he was handsome and missed the boat completely. As we learned from the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 on the board, verse 25 and 30, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. By the way, how beautiful is it when a believer smiles at the future and doesn't care what's to come next? Is there anything more beautiful than that? Like, I can't think of anything. She smiles at the future. She's not worried about the future. She trusts God's going to take care of things. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord she shall be praised. Her motivation is good. What's her motivation? She fears the Lord. She respects the Lord. She wants to honor the Lord. So what happens? She's blessed, even though her physical appearance is not brought out in this passage. Her beauty. Our Lord, when he was in the flesh, he did all things to please the Father. That was his motivation. What was his motivation? I want to please the Father in everything I do. As a man, even though he was also God, as a man, he said, I want to please my Heavenly Father in everything. How is God not going to bless that motivation if that's your motivation? How is your Father, who loves you so much, not going to bless that motivation and make you happy even, despite this crummy world? As Pastor asked on Tuesday, do you see that the virtuous woman is a picture of Christ? It's so funny that he said that on Tuesday because after I listened to Sunday's message, the Spirit had me pondering the same thing. What a, what a visual aid the virtuous woman is in Proverbs 31 and how it's a picture of Christ at the same time. Someone with character and virtue and integrity and love not making an issue out of superficial things. It's those things that are truly beautiful and stand out. Have you ever met someone who was very plain looking, maybe unattractive, and after you got to know them and talk to them for even just five or ten minutes and you saw their love for Christ and their, their inner peace, they stood out to you as so much more beautiful? I'm sure you have, right? I mean, we've all 
met people like that. Because we always judge by the first impression, right? And then we're like, huh, they're not special or whatever. They look kind of grumpy or whatever we, we jump to. And then we find out they're grumpy because they just had an operation. And we find out they're talking about the Lord and they want to talk about the Lord and they've been waiting for you to come by. And 10 minutes later, you're like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. Or, He's so beautiful. Not because of the outside. We might even say they have a glow on, on their face. We've all met people like that. And maybe that's the Spirit of God showing us what's really important. Uh, so we have to drop our own definitions of beauty according to the flesh. Agreed? Like, see, we are so steeped in it that we're drowning in this false perspective about beauty. We're so saturated in it, it's like a piece of white Wonder Bread put in a bowl of water. That's how saturated we are with this false definition of beauty. We grew, we grew up that way. We're in the media generation. Give me a bigger video screen with a clearer picture and somebody with a perfect face, with a made-up face that's not even their real face, so that I can buy a lie about what beauty is. Listen, if you had that for decades and decades, what do you, what do you, what do you think? You're not fooled? You're so fooled, you're so in it that you don't see it, right? And this goes for all of us. God's saying, Ugh, just drop it. Throw that lie in the garbage because it's enslaving us. On the board, fitness for service. That's what fitness is for. Not to look good and impress people and gain things from it. Fitness is for God's service. For the sake of proper perspective, we mustn't make physical fitness anything but a slave of spiritual fitness. We must be properly motivated, serving the Lord rather than the flesh. Hope that makes sense. Physical fitness is there to be a slave of spiritual fitness. It's to be used as a servant. It's for God and God alone, really. On the board, the goal of any form of fitness is service. And you remember how we started the message with uh, we pervert everything? We pervert everything. What did Pastor ask us on Tuesday night? He said, do you see how this one truth, this point on the board, is among the greatest targets of perversion in this world? Fitness is anything but for service of others in the minds of most. Most people, it's for self. People are hung up on good looks and superficial beauty, and that is called living in a lie. That's a perversion of what God intends. So we must guard ourselves from these lies. We must cast them aside, call them what they are. Stop being lied to by Satan. Stop listening to the devil's world telling you what beauty is, for example. As came out on Tuesday, Whatever you've been clinging to for self-esteem, like your looks, like your body, like whatever, your appearance, put it in the grave. Put it in the grave and throw some dirt on it. Cleave it off, as Pastor said. Chuck it. That's, that's how worthless, that's how disgusting it is. That's how much it's hurting you. Cut it off. Don't accept it. It's, it's from the flesh. It's a dead 
way of thinking. Our bodies are given to us to serve our Lord and Master and Savior, not to be preoccupied with selfish gain and flattery. On Sunday and Tuesday, we ended with this. Protect your mind. Go to Romans 8, verse 6 again. Romans 8, verse 6. Protect your mind. Don't let your mind buy the lies that the devil's world is throwing at you every day. Get in the word of God. That's the only way you're going to protect your mind. Romans 8, 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we have to pay attention to what's going on behind the scenes, in the invisible realm, on the board, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's end game is to thwart the will of God. The most effective way to do this is to insert false knowledge into the mind. For example, what true beauty looks like. Insert false knowledge into the mind, thus defiling the conscience. If we're not on guard, we do godly things from the wrong motive. It could even be prayer. We ask with the wrong motives, as, as James says. Remember, your flesh is self-serving and self-preserving. It want, it'll do whatever it takes to preserve itself. It doesn't want to get in the back seat. Your flesh says, look at me, I'm over here. Somebody turns his, his back on the flesh. Your flesh is like, hey, turn around, look at me. What about me? Your flesh does not want to be forgotten. Forget die. Your flesh does not want to be forgotten. That's the side of you that's, that's making us do things for the wrong reasons, which God can't honor. And you wonder why you're not blessed, because you won't submit. It's pretty simple. So again, unless we remain on guard and protect our minds, we will even do godly things in the flesh. Godly things in the flesh. Becoming victim to sin's deceitfulness in our lives. As came out on Tuesday night on God's desire for us, crucify your flesh on the cross with my son. Send it all to the grave where he went and enjoy the resurrection life, scars and all. Whatever's required of you, whatever persecution comes along with it, enjoy the new life. Put the other stuff in the grave. Throw dirt on it. In a way, we're back to simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So let's close with a few plainly stated scriptures. You're in Romans. Go to Romans 6, verse 6. Again, on the board, God's desire for us, crucify your flesh on the cross with my son. Send it all to the grave where he went and enjoy the resurrection life, scars and all. Romans 6, 6 through 7. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Look at Romans 8, 13. Romans 8, 13. 
For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Romans 13, verse 14. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. In other words, don't buy the lie. Use your body to wear Christ, to carry around Christ's heart, if you will. Don't make any provision for the flesh. So let's not mourn over losing our fleshly binkies, the things that we want to hold on to that we know are wrong. That would be mourning adolescent style. We need to grow up and mourn over our sin against God, going to Him in sackcloth and ashes, allowing Him to both forgive us and redeem us from our pasts. On the board, James 4, 9, Be miserable and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's okay. That's actually good. It's actually good. Don't mourn over fleshly binkies that you have to give up. Mourn over things we really should mourn about. How our sin has offended God. And let God restore you and make you new from that position, from that place. Let's cleave off the superficial remnants of false self-esteem. We're such slaves to that. Let's no longer rejoice in earthly, fleshly things that make us slaves to our lusts. Let's do what Jesus did. His desire was to please the Father. Simple question. Back to simplicity. The great litmus test. Is what I'm doing bringing glory to God? Is what I'm doing or about to do going to please the Father? Super simple. But that's the way to good motivation and that results in joy and peace. But that won't happen, and here's what we're going to close with, that won't happen unless we open our eyes to what we might be perverting. We pervert everything, remember. Unless we're willing to open our eyes to what we might be perverting, we won't be set free. So let's close with this that came out on Tuesday night on the board. What's normal? Step back and challenge your norms. We pervert everything, right? There's nothing that we leave alone. There's nothing that the human race leaves alone. Even the good things of God, we pervert. So step back. If that's true, step back and challenge your norms. What's normal for you? And because it's normal, you think it's good? I dare say that everything we think is normal, there's a part of it not good. That's what I think. We just don't see it. So if you're willing, between you and God, step back and challenge your norms. And really, in the end, this is to let yourself free, to let him free you. Yeah, it might be a little painful because you have to drop something. But if you realize it was a chain around your ankle, you're actually going to be grateful. Step back and challenge your norms. Assume you're doing many things wrongly. Never assume what's normal for you must be right. 
I hope that makes sense. And I don't want to sound like the negative person. Everything you're doing is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. Never assume that anything you're doing is totally perfect and pure and right because it's kind of impossible. Never assume because it's normal for you, it must be okay. And if you're willing to do that, to go to that place, then God can work on us and set us free and our motivation becomes for him and him alone. And then guess what? God blesses you with real blessings, not the fake stuff that we chase. So again, the Spirit is challenging us all to step back and challenge our norms between us and Him. And see what He does in your life. might actually be better than the uh, things you've been chasing. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. And Your grace and Your patience with us is so tremendous. Much more than we even realize. And Father, we're grateful and thankful that you are pointing these things out to us by your Spirit. And you're showing us your Word and all these truths so that we can just accept the plain truth and be set free as you intended. Christ died to set us free. Help us, Father, to live in this, to have a pure motivation of doing things for you and pleasing you and you alone, Father. We need your help. We can't do this. We fail every day. We need your help to correct our motivation and show us the light and show us where we need to drop things. By your grace and your power, Father, we can do this. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.